10 principles uh, for living that were given by God 3,500 years ago to an entire nation of people who had been nothing but slaves for 400 years. He gives them these commandments. He teaches them how to live as free human beings. And so we're digging into them to discover what we can, what we can learn. God He's so beautiful the way he, he beautifully proves his love and his devotion to these, these people. He teaches them how to be human again and how to love God and how to love each other, right? And so we're, we're digging down uh, deep to tr- try to dig down past the, the obvious surface of these commandments and ask, number one, how do these ancient laws uh, give us a better picture today of, of how we're supposed to represent Christ and be rep- ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And number two, what do these commandments actually reveal to us about God? Because one of the things that we're, we're discovering is that anytime you have a rule, anytime you have a law in the Bible, uh, it's always rooted in something deeper. It's always rooted in something greater because it, re- it reveals a little more of who God is and what he is like. And so that's what we really want to discover. We want a relationship with Jesus. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's all about relationship. And we, we want that relationship. So we want to discover a little more who God is. So today, we are all the way to commandment number eight. We're in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Number eight, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. All right. Anybody ever, ever, anybody ever been robbed before? Anybody ever been robbed? Yeah. It's like this horrible feeling, right? It's like a punch in the gut. I, I, I've, I've had things stolen a, f- a couple of times. There was one time it was really unusual. Uh, it was, I walked out of my house one morning to my car, and I realized I had left my car unlocked. And it just so happened that um, <clears throat> I didn't really have much of, of value in the car, but what I, what I did have, I realized quickly, had, had been taken. It was like some change out of the little, you know, change thing. But also, I had my... Uh, I had like a duffel bag in the back seat that I had left back there. That was back in the days when I used to work out. I used to go to the gym. <laughs> Obviously, don't anymore. Um, but so I had left my bag back there. And so I kind of had, I, I had a chuckle because what these guys, whoever it was, what they got was like this really ratty old shirt, some old underwear, and some really dirty socks. And so I was like, well, God bless them, you know. <laughs> Uh, that plus, you know, the, the dimes and nickels. So, uh, they, they obviously needed that, but it, when you get robbed, it's like a punch in the gut, right? Anybody ever had that feeling? There's there's something about it. It feels, no matter what happens, it feels very personal, you know? Even if you were just like the random person who happened to be there, it feels very personal. There's something about it. And now, just kind of like the other uh, commandments that we've studied. This one looks pretty straightforward, but what we want to do is dig down and see, you know, what are those lovely bits right below the surface? So we're going we're gonna to talk about this today. Um, first of all, remember who God is speaking to when he gives these commandments. He is speaking to former slaves, and, and not just one generation of slaves, not just like people he just, like, rescued from prison. These are people who had been slaves, like I said, for four hundred years. It's all they knew. It's all their ancestors knew was slavery. It means they don't have a clue how to live as free people. And when you really get to thinking about what that would do to, to your psyche, to your outlook, imagine what God had to teach them just about something as simple as private property, 
right? Part of the evil of slavery is that you don't own private property. You don't have it. What, what you produce isn't yours. There's someone there to take it from you. As soon as you've produced it, it, it belongs to your master. Um, so anything you produce of value is taken from you. Uh, what, what you have in your home isn't really yours. Anyone can come and take it at any time. And so, you know, when you have this slave mentality, if you do find something, what do you do? You hide it. Exactly right. You bury it, hide it, because that's, that's all you're, you're going to... You know, all you can be expected to keep. So 400 years of Egyptian slavery basically would have bred an entire race of thieves, when you think about it, if God hadn't shown them how to live as free people, right? Uh, So God says to them, you must not steal. You must not ever become, you know, those Egyptians who took everything from you, who who oppressed you and took all of your things, took the production of your, your labor and all this kind of stuff. You must never for a moment become like the place you just came from. He's teaching them how to become free people and never become like the people who oppressed you. Don't take what's yours. Number one, because you don't need to anymore because God is big enough and he's great enough to take care of your needs, right? To provide for you anything you ever have need of. And not only here in the journey, but on the, you know, on the wilderness, but when you get to the promised land, God's going to be enough to take care of you. But in essence, God is saying, you're not playing that game anymore. We're not playing that. Instead, you're going to start a whole new way of living. It's a very revolutionary way of living, what God was teaching them through these commandments. Because in a real sense, the Israelites were about to experience private property for the first time. Private property. And, and with that responsibility of private property comes the need to respect other people's par- property. Right? So this is all very new to them. Now let's ask a really fundamental question to start off today. Fundamental question. If stealing is taking something that isn't mine, then the question becomes, how do I properly get what is mine? What are the ways that I properly get what is mine? Basically, it comes down to two things. Either it was given to me through a gift, some sort of a gift, or it was left to me or something like that, or I earned it. Either it was given to me or I earned it. So either someone gave me a, a gift of something, and that was wonderful, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's mine now, or I went out there, and I worked hard for it, and I exchanged money to get this thing, and now I have it, and now that property is mine. So I earned it. Now, I, I want, if, if you have your Bibles, turn over to, to Deuteronomy chapter 8, because God says some things here that are very interesting about earning things. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Starting in verse 11, he says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied. Now, notice here, he doesn't say these are bad things, okay? These aren't bad things. God isn't condemning generating wealth. Uh, in fact, that's never spoken of as evil in the scriptures. Unless, what does he say? Then your heart will become proud 
and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Skip down to verse uh, 17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So we, we said that there's two ways we, we get something. Either some, someone gave us something or we earned it. But God says, actually, even what you earned is a gift from me too because I gave you the ability. This is going to be important to us, so just kind of keep this in the back of your mind. We have to understand that from the perspective of heaven, everything we have, whether we earned it or we were given it, is all a gift, it's all a gift. So with this in mind, think about theft. Theft is the failure to accept this relational understanding of God, isn't it? To un- it's a failure to understand that everything is a gift. Stealing is in direct opposition to this directional flow of gifting from God to you and me. Amen. It's incompatible. So stealing is really about far larger issues than just taking more than your fair share. Uh, See, in God's economic system, his economic system, he doesn't condemn people for making money and accumulating wealth. A lot of people think God does, but he really doesn't because he says it's all his. See, once you understand everything is gift, you understand he doesn't condemn people for making money, for accumulating wealth, unless it's at the expense of of someone else who's getting poor. If you're getting wealthy at the expense of somebody who's getting poor, now God's going to have a problem because he always hears the cry, right, of the oppressed. And and God's best, God's best is never to take away from this person to give to this person. He's never going to do that. God's not Robin Hood, okay? So he doesn't steal from the rich and give to the poor, and he sure doesn't steal from the poor to give to the rich. That's not God's way. See, we think of in that term because we think of zero-sum economy, right? If I have a dollar, that's a dollar you don't get. God doesn't think that way. He doesn't think zero-sum. In God's kingdom, there is plenty. There is enough for everyone to have all their needs met and to be a blessing to other people. That's God's economy, Amen. right? That's the kingdom of heaven. But stealing says to God, No, no, no. There's a limited number of dollar bills in this world, and I don't trust you to meet all my needs. That's what stealing says to God. I don't trust you to meet my needs. So it's actually throwing in his face the the blessings that God wants to give you. And it's stealing the blessings that God has blessed someone else with. You see? So let's let's make a kind of a logical leap here. If if stealing, if to steal is to work against the blessings of God. What would the opposite of that be? To work with the blessings of God, right? To work with God's blessings, to be a part of what he is doing. In other words, the opposite of stealing from someone is to bless someone. The opposite of stealing from someone is to bless someone. See, we think the opposite of stealing from someone is just not to steal from them. (laughs) Right? Right? A good... good, uh, you know, libertarian like myself says the opposite of stealing is, is to leave people alone. But God actually says that's not going far enough. The opposite of stealing is to bless. Amen. To bless. See, we are blessed to be a blessing. 
That's the reason we are blessed, to be a blessing. In the scriptures, blessing is always the instrument that God uses to take care of his people. It's how God takes care of people. If, if you and I have gifts and talents and wealth, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not, it's not something we need to feel guilty about. See, that's the problem. For many people, when you start talking about meeting the needs of the poor, when you, when you start talking about God's heart, that he hears the cry of the oppressed, when you start talking about God's heart for the poor and the needy, the place many people immediately go to, where, where a lot of us immediately go to, is guilt. Right? We go to guilt for what we have. Especially in our culture, which is admittedly very blessed. Right? And so, and so some people think, like if we say, oh, well, we're, we're such a blessed culture, or, or you know, America is so blessed, or something like that, they immediately think guilt, or they think condemnation, or they think that, that I'm saying, oh, we're so, we're so horrible because we have stuff. God never says anybody's horrible for having anything. Right? There's no, there's no guilt. There's no condemnation there. But people in Scripture are never chastised for having stuff, but rather for not giving stuff. That's what it's about. The issue isn't what you have, but it's, it's what do I have that the Spirit of God is moving me to give to someone, to bless someone with. Not because I'm so great, because I understand that everything I have is a gift. So it's, this isn't like me being so great and generous, I'm giving all of my things away. No, everything I have is a gift, but what do I have? How do I flow with the move of what God is doing, right? And, and everything I have is a gift, which God has given to you to both enjoy and to share with other people. He never said, don't enjoy any of your stuff, <laughs> right? There is no universal law in, in Scripture where he says you have to sell everything you have. He told one person to do that, right, because they had a heart problem. Right? He told the rich young ruler, you need to sell everything because I'm seeing where your issue is. But we take this as a universal law. He didn't say that as a universal law for everybody. So I, I get to be a demonstration of God's heart. The scripture is clear. There, there will be people who have and there will be people who do not have. And there is a responsibility for those who have. Right? And remember this, the primary verb, we've talked about this before, the primary verb in the Bible is to give. This is the, the verb that demonstrates the nature of God, to give. He is a giver. It, it, it's so, uh, when I heard Robert Morris say this, Robert Morris up in Dallas, he said this, the, the primary verb of the Bible is to give. I thought about, it just blew my mind. It like made everything fall into place. You know, one of those things that happened? Because it's amazing. What God is, is love. The Bible says God is love, but what he does is give. What does he do out of that love? He gives. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? He didn't just think nice thoughts about you. He gave. That is what he does. It is the primary, just the fundamental action of God to give. And so when you give, you're actually being at your most like God. When you give, you're being at your most like God. But when you're blessed and you don't pass it on, it, it's actually a corruption of God's system. It's a corruption. He never blesses us with wealth uh, just so we can sit back fat and happy and be the final destination for our riches. He never meant for us to be the final destination for what he's given us. In fact, I, I'll say this. I'd be really careful if, to ever find 
myself in a position where I no longer need to depend on God to supply my needs, right? It's not wrong to be wealthy. It kind of goes back to that whole scripture, you know, when he said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man. See, he didn't say it's impossible for a rich man. It's not like it's bad to be a rich man. It's difficult because there's a difficulty involved there. When you're a rich man, there's a difficulty there, right? Because the tendency is to get the riches, to feel like I've arrived I don't really need God anymore. I don't got to trust in the Lord. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be in your life, right? To be in a place where you no longer need to depend on God. That may be a sign. I'm, I'm not condemning you, but there may be a sign that we need to stretch ourselves a little. If we find ourselves in a place, I don't really need God. I need to stretch myself so I can be used of God, right? Um, because cause blessing is the primary economic driving force in the kingdom of God, I'm going to say that again. Blessing is the primary economic driving force in the kingdom of God. Here in the world, we have, a, we have a lot of different things that drive our economy. If you ask some economists, they'll actually tell you the system of debt, debt and credit is actually what drives the economy, right? Debt and credit. And, and the fact that there is debt and there is credit, it's what you know, makes businesses borrow from banks and banks lend money and it keeps everybody happy and buying things and all that good stuff. That's one of the reasons why we always say, one of the greatest ways, one of the easiest ways to, to get yourself out of the rat race and not be subject to the economy of the world is to get yourself debt-free, right? Don't be beholden to the banks out there. But the, the world system runs on debts and credits and this sort of thing. God's system is totally different. In the kingdom of heaven, the economic driving force is blessing. Blessing. It's how things happen in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Jesus had, uh, you can turn there if you want to, Jesus had just left the planet, and the, the church was exploding. It was growing so fast. And what started with a few disciples quickly spread to this radical movement of thousands of people. Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, he says this. It's describing the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Sounds like Picnic Sunday, <laughs> right? Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So notice here, nobody's poor. Nobody's so poor that they had to steal, right? Everyone took a role in the well-being of others. That was just what it meant to be <clears throat> part of the, the community, Right? If you had a need, then other people rose to the occasion. And it wasn't just all up to you because everybody would, would help out. That's, that's, not, that's not just what they believed. It's how they lived. In fact, two chapters later, we go on to read that it says there, was no, there were no needy persons among them. It's amazing. Two chapters later, two chapters later, they've gone from like sharing food and clothes to selling their homes and things like that, right? It's like they're trying to outcompete each other for who, who can be the, most, the greatest blessing to people. It's an amazing thing what's going on here. One of the things that defined the early church is they gave to each other and they made sure that nobody was going without in their midst. Now, let's look at what, how this contrasts with another picture of the church when religious people get together and don't practice generosity. Over in Isaiah, God gets 
he gets really cranked up angry at some folks in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That can't be good. Right off the bat, when, when, right, if joy ever comes down and gives us a word of knowledge and starts out, you people of Gomorrah and Sodom, we're going to need to change some things around here. Uh, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless meaningless offerings. Verse 14, he says, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. In verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. God is in a bad mood right here, right? I think we, these, now, these are good religious people. Let's understand. He's not like talking to some pagan society who are off living in sin. These are good religious people who are doing everything right. They're doing all the right rituals. They go to church. They sing the right songs. They got their hands in the air. Praise the Lord. They're saying all the right things. So what have they done wrong that's gotten God so fired up? Look at verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. That's the orphans. Plead the case of the widow. They've neglected the poor. They neglected the poor. See, they're acting holy. They're acting holy, but they're not reflecting the generosity of God to the world. They're withholding God's blessing, which means they're representing God badly. And he gets cranked up about that because we're the representatives of God, right? So he cares what we're doing. He cares about how, how the world is looking at us. And God considers this theft. Theft. Here's something else God considers theft. Over in Malachi, he says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. See, stealing is taking what God intends as a blessing for someone else and taking it for myself. That's stealing. And this makes sense because the tithe was always intended to go towards taking care of others. In the Old Testament, New Testament, that's where it was. The scripture is very clear on this, this principle of, of returning to God your first and your best. The Bible calls it the first fruits. And it's all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, during the law, before the law, after the law. We've talked about this before. We return the tithe to God, number one, because it belongs to him. Because everything we have is a gift. And so the tithe is, is, a, is a demonstration that everything I have is a gift, so I'm giving you my first tenth, the, you know, my first and my best. I'm giving it to you, Lord, um, or, or returning it back to you. And number two, because it is an instrument God uses to take care of those in need. Blessing is the instrument God uses to take care of people in need. Now, let's get even more practical about how we can live this blessing lifestyle. Because this is more than just about, hopefully we're understanding, this is more than just about not stealing from people. We want to actively become an instrument uh, that God can use to bless people. Amen? Amen. Because that's, that's a really cool life. John the Baptist, he, he gives this really simple principle that anyone can live by. It was beautiful. And in the book of uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 11, John answered, anyone who has two shirts 
should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Now, this helps me a great deal. This scripture. This helps me because immediately where my mind goes, I don't know if you're like me, when I'm confronted with God's desire to help other people, with God's desire to be a blessing or desire for me to be a blessing, my first impulse is kind of always like, I need to like jump on a plane and fly to somewhere and help people three million miles away, right? Uh, we have this impulse in our minds. Anybody else get this? You, you kind of, you hear, or you hear somebody talking, you're like, oh, if I were a really good spiritual person, I would just drop, drop everything, trek, trek to the jungles of Patan, like Jimmy, and, 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 you know, where everybody's like half naked, and I would go like give them a bunch of granola bars and blue jeans and whatever it is, you know. Anybody else get this? And so you get this sort of like guilt thing, like, oh, if I were just more spiritual, if I were more spiritual. And you immediately think, I got to go, I got to go somewhere to really make a difference and obey God. But the question may be, because John phrases it here in terms of neighbors, that's who he's talking about. Maybe the question starts off simply, what do I have two of that I can share? What do I have two of that I could share? Maybe it's a lot more immediate and practical than we imagine. Who who right around me has none and I have two? What if it just starts right there? Who has none and I have two? Or maybe you start by asking yourself this question. Let me get let me say this right. In your closets. Is there anything you haven't worn in the past year? (laughs) I see a husband nudging his wife over here. That's going to be a long ride home. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Or maybe we just need to, uh, we all need to admit very honestly, we don't know if that's ever going to fit. Right? (laughs) That thing thing you're holding. Yeah, I've I've got a few of those, yeah. How many of us have, have bigger closets than we do living rooms? <laughs> How many of us have devoted more space for storage than we have to fellowshipping with people? Right? Or we've invested more energy into storage than we have relationships. Storage. Right? Now, it's not meant as a condemnation, but maybe it's, it's a symptom of something that's not quite spiritually healthy, right? Maybe. We could all admit, yeah, maybe I'm not all together, got it all together yet. Are we building bigger and bigger barns, as it says in Scripture? Bigger and bigger barns, but at the same time, we're, we're strangling the economy of blessing that God wants to have flow throughout the earth. Remember, that blessing is God's economy. If we strangle that flow, what if we're doing that? There was a great question in, in a home life a few weeks ago in our home life groups. Uh, someone asked the question, what is your most valued possession? 
It was, it was really good. We got to talking about that, and it created a lot of discussion. And your most valued possession, I mean, pretend like, you ever seen uh, in Hawaii when the volcanoes go and the, the lava, like, slowly creeps up the driveway, and it, like, it's horrible. It takes, you know, it, like, burns homes and things like that. Imagine that's you. Imagine the lava is slowly creeping up your driveway. You've got five minutes to grab something. No, all your family and Fido, the puppy, and everybody's out in the street. They're all safe. But you've got five minutes to grab something. What would you grab? What's your most valued possession? And, and we got all kinds of really interesting, good answers when we were talking about this. What would you run back inside for? And some of us have a hard time deciding what to save because we have so much, it's hard to pick one thing. We have so much stuff that we can't, some of us can't even get a handle on what all we have. We're like, well, I, I need to go like see what I have. I forget what all I have stored away, right? You know, one of the fastest growing uh, business segments in America, the market segments is self-storage. Those pods, uh, storage garages, whatnot, things like that. Why? Because we have so much stuff. We have so much stuff we might need it one day. And so we have to, we're going to pay money to keep it in a place we can't use it, can't see it, well, we're going to forget about it, much less ever use it, Right? But we want to have it. One of the strangest, newest social disorders is hoarding. Didn't hear about hoarding 50 years ago. Hoarding. We have more than we could ever use. And we surround ourselves by so much stuff, we can't even see it all. We, don't even, we can't even enjoy it all, but we, want, we need to know it's there. It's kind of a new illness in the society, hoarding. Um, there's even a TV show where you could watch all these other people who are hoarders, why? And feel better about the way we hoard. <laughs> That's why it's so popular. It's the number one reason why it's popular, because we can watch that and go, uh, at least I'm not that bad, right? <laughs> now that's a problem, right? And then we can't get into our own closet. But we feel better about that, right? Um, now again, I'll say it again. It's not wrong to have wealth. God blesses you. If God blesses you with wealth, then get on your knees and thank him for it. Thank him if he blesses you. Because ultimately, it's all a gift, right? Whether your dear departed Uncle Joe left it to you or you worked really hard for it, it's a gift. God says it's a gift because he gave you the ability to work for it, right? But we should never forget that everything we have, whether it was given to us, whether it was earned by us, it ultimately belongs to God and we are stewards of it. Um, it, To withhold blessing from somebody, to withhold blessing is stealing from God. To steal from somebody is actually stealing from God. Both are to rob God himself because it all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. So whether I'm actively stealing from someone or I'm defrauding my place of work, right? Or I'm cheating my employees or I'm stealing from the state by withholding my taxes illegally. Hello? Right? Now believe me, I, ugh, I hate every last cent I have to give to the state, but it's not worth my soul to make some political statement. Right, or, or I'm stealing from my boss by just giving 50% effort. It's theft. Or I'm stealing by being stingy. 
with the wealth that God's blessed me with. It's all breaking the Eighth Commandment. It's all breaking the Eighth Commandment. It's, it's stealing. And, and more, more importantly, I'm disobeying Christ's commandment to love God and love my neighbor. It's, it fundamentally, you can't steal and love you can't steal and love your neighbor at the same time. So, when you think about it, there's kind of three ways to view your wealth. Three ways to view wealth. There's sort of three philosophies. These two are very common in the world. The first one is what's mine is mine. What's mine is mine. Common philosophy in the world. Either somebody gave it to me, or I earned it, or I inherited it, but it's mine now, and mine it will stay. Right? Maybe there's folks out there who could use my help, I don't know, and maybe I have more than I need, but it's mine, so I'm keeping it, okay? Just for the sake of argument, we'll call this right-wing economics, <laughs> just to make half of you mad. Number two, second philosophy in the world, what's yours is mine. You have something I want, you have something I need, so I'm taking it, Right? I need it, so I'm going to take it, either through legal means, like I'll sue you for it, or uh, I'll tax you for it, or through illegal means, like I'll hit you on the head and break into your house and, you know, and take it, or maybe just through ways that are a little, you know, ethically challenged, like lying on my insurance claim, you know, uh, overbilling a client, something like that, ignoring some income on my taxes or something like that. The point is, the point is, I deserve something you have, and so uh, I'm going to take it. Uh, and we'll think of that as left-wing economics, just to make the other half of you mad. <laughs> so this is kind of the, the two philosophies of the world. What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine. But Jesus comes along and offers us a third way. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus always offers this beautiful third way? Amen? Amen. I love the third way of Jesus. He, anytime, anytime they ever tried to trip Jesus up, by giving him a, some kind of a binary choice. He always did a little jujitsu mind trick on him and, and, and threw a third way at it after him, right? When they, when they drug the lady out and they said, oh, we caught her in adultery, so do we stone her as the law of Moses says or do we let her go like the law of, of uh, Rome says? You know, Jesus does this cool little thing, he like doodles in the dirt and then he stands up and he says, I'll tell you what, the... Whoever has never sinned, y'all throw the first rock. And they're all like, right? (laughs) Wasn't expecting that one, right? When they said, you know, these Roman soldiers, these are so terrible. They make us carry their stuff a whole mile down the road. What should we do, Jesus? If they want us to carry their stuff a mile, should we carry it just like sheep? Let them just kick us around? Or should we fight back? Like rebels. They're wanting him to give an answer, right? What does he say? He goes, I tell you what, if a soldier asks you to carry it, his pack, you carry it. he wants you to carry it a mile, you carry it two miles. Right? Third way. Hi-ya! <laughs> third way, Jesus. I love Jesus. He always offers a third way. There's so many examples of this in the Bible. You could do a whole series on Jesus' third way. Hey, that's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> Note to self. All right. Third way. The world says what mine is mine or what's yours is mine. Jesus comes along and says what's mine is his. What's mine is his. Everything I have actually belongs to God. And I am a temporary steward of all of his stuff. 
It's not mine to waste, and it's not mine to hoard. It all belongs to God. And he wants me to enjoy it, to share it freely and joyfully with other people. To spread the kingdom of heaven. To keep that economy of blessing flowing. This is the, it, this is the concept of stewardship. Stewardship is a big deal. It's very important. It's a big theme in the Bible. Stewardship. In fact, in the Bible, when it talks in Scripture about uh, who is qualified to be a pastor, in, in 1 Timothy 3 and over in Titus 1, do you know what one of the first things it says? They must be a good steward. Right? And then, you know, it talks about, yeah, they have their family and their theology and morality and all that good stuff. But the first thing it says is they have to be a good steward. Now, stewardship is very countercultural. It doesn't make any sense to the world out there, outside these doors. Right? Stewardship. It's not capitalistic. It's not communistic. It's kingdom of heaven. Stewardship is kingdom of heaven. It's, it's totally different. It says that every cent that passes through your possession belongs to your Father in heaven. Every cent. Belongs to your Father in heaven. Every brick in my house, every can of good in my pantry belongs to God. Everything I have is a gift. And stealing in any form is failing to acknowledge that everything comes from the Lord. And everything will eventually return to him. So, to to close this today, I want to be kind of pastorly to you for a few minutes. I'm going to give you three ways. Three ways to help guard your heart against the spirit of theft, okay? This is how, you, how to protect yourself. If you're taking notes, here we go. Number one, cultivate a heart of generosity. This is everything we've just been talking about. That's what we've been talking about. Develop a craving to be a part of the blessing that God is pouring out to other people. Practice generosity. If you, even if you're not feeling it, if you practice it, you'll start to feel it. You'll start to feel it. You'll start to want to, you'll see people and you'll just want to start helping them, right? Because I'll tell you what, between you and me, God is looking for people who will be a conduit for his economy of blessing, Amen. right? And if you're, if you're blessing with everything he puts in your hands, you're being a blessing to people, he's going to make sure you are a part of that economy of blessing, Amen. right? Not so you can get rich and fat and you know, happy. He, 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 wants, he wants to go bless other people and he will use you. And there's no greater joy, right? This isn't about getting rich. This is about feeling more joy than you've ever felt in your life. Being a blessing to people. Being a blessing to people. Number two, another way to guard your heart, to protect your heart, is cultivate a heart of gratefulness. Gratefulness. Oh, this is so big. This is, this is another whole sermon right here. But are you consumed by what you have or by what you don't have? Does that consume you? It's about your focus. Are you always thinking about what you don't have? In Philippians, Paul says to don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about the things that you don't have, that you need. Be thankful and pray about it. In all thanksgiving, he says, in all thanksgiving, with prayer and supplication, make your request known to Jesus. So we often reverse that. We're anxious about everything and pray about nothing. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, just being honest, right? It doesn't make you evil, it just makes you human. We get anxious about stuff and then we forget to pray. Paul says, flip that around. Pray about everything. Don't be anxious about anything. Have a heart of gratefulness. And number three, cultivate a heart of contentment. 
contentment. Contentment's one of these weird things. I have to tell you, I used to have a real mixed feelings about this word. I don't know if you're like me. It's a misunderstood virtue. To some people, contentment feels like giving up. You know what I mean? Like content. Blech. It's just kind of leaves you cold, right? I'm content. Yay. <laughs> it, it, I always thought, man, contentment. I don't get contentment. It feels like giving up. It turns out contentment is not about giving up. Contentment is about having patience with where you're at and faith in God's leading. Right? It's the difference between impatience and patience. How many of you remember what it was like to be 12 years old? Were you ever like impatient to be 18 and make your own rules? Right? And you get really anxious about it. And, and did, was there anything you could do? Was there any amount of like trying really hard if you just applied yourself, could you all of a sudden become 18? No, right? You're going to have to go through it. You're going to have to go through those six or seven years to get to 18, whatever that magic age that you thought was going to be, right? Contentment is saying, I'm going to own this. I am going to thrive right here where God has me right? If you're 12 years old, you're like, all right, I'm going to own 12, man. I'm going to be the best 12 ever. It's okay. You can be content and have ambition. You can be content and have goals and dreams and look forward to a thing. Contentment isn't not having anything to look forward to. Contentment is saying, that's going to be great, but I am going to own this right now, right? I'm going to rock this where God has me right now because contentment is faith that God has you right where he wants you that you're in the right place at the right time, and that when he is ready, and if you're following his leading, when he is ready, he will move you to the next right step. That is contentment. Contentment. Do you really believe that God is your provider? Is that he's really making a way for you, like it says in Psalm 23? Or do we think that God messed up and he forgot about us? God says, trust me, and I'll give you the desires of your heart. And you know what you find? When you learn to be content, we learn this, this awesome peaceful, joyous contentment. You practice trusting God where you are. What happens is you gradually stop stressing over where you aren't. I'll say that again because here's your tweetable moment for the morning. What you find when you practice trusting God where you are, what happens is you gradually stop stressing over where you aren't because you're trusting the Lord. You're trusting the Lord you know I'm where he wants me and he's going to show me the next right step and this journey that I have is going to be good for me. He's got it all taken care of. He hasn't forgotten about me. He hasn't abandoned me, right? I'll be 18 eventually, right? 3,500 years ago, God gave these laws of love to the Israelites, not just so they would have uh, another list of rules. These are not just about having another list of rules to keep. God gave these to teach us how to be free human beings. It goes for us too. Because we were born into slavery. Every single one of us are born into slavery until we accept Jesus. We're slaves. We don't even know it, we're slaves. God teaches us how to be free human beings. And I believe that God wants to set people free right here today. He wants to set us free from greed. He wants to set us free from poverty. He wants to set us free from desperation. 
free from laziness. See, all these things are kind of like roots that lead people to steal in some way in their life. He wants to set us free from these things. He wants you to depend on him because he cares for you. We have to accept that he cares for us. He wants to change our very nature from grasping and clawing through life like, you know, pirates, thieves, and hoarders. He doesn't want that for us. He wants to set us free. He wants us to become people who reflect his generosity and who are a blessing to everybody around us. Because the truth is you can't be a taker. You can't be a taker, a stingy person, and be truly Christ-like. If, if, if you're like, man, that's kind of my nature. If you were just, you know, being honest to yourself, I'm kind of a taker. I'm a little stingy. I'm, I'm tight that way. God can do something with you, right? He can deliver you from that. Because you can't be truly Christ-like. Because stinginess is foreign to him. It's opposite of who Jesus is. He's not, there's nothing stingy about Jesus. If you're the type that has to be the first in line, if, if you're the type that, that has to take more than your share, that always has to have your hand out, I encourage you, just repent. Repent this morning and ask God to transform you into somebody who, who reflects who he is, become to a generous person. Because God wants to turn you into a generous person. He wants to transform you into the image of his son. Jesus is the most generous it gets, right? He wants to make you generous. He wants to make you grateful. He wants to make you content, a person who is blessed to be a blessing, because that's what love looks like. Amen?